0: 12, while you're finding your place in 1 Corinthians 15, um, let me just say a little bit about Easter. This is the day that we celebrate the resurrection from the dead of Jesus, um, and the resurrection is the single most important event in all of history. The entire created order, God's entire plan of redemption, and the purpose of all mankind is centered upon Christ's death and resurrection. And that is why, as we have studied Acts, that is why every sermon preached in the book of Acts is about the resurrection of Jesus, every letter written to the churches is about the resurrection. The book of Revelation, with all of its symbolism and prophecy of future events, is about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is essential not only to the Christian faith, but essential to all of creation and every person and to all of history and to eternity. Which is why Paul says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He was raised to life for our justification. And that is also why Paul states that if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, which we're going to read in our text today, then we who believe in him are to be pitied more than anyone, any other person or all men. And so, we need to be able to be confident that the resurrection took place. So if you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? We're going to read what Paul has to say here. And then we're going to talk about why we can be confident that the, that the resurrection did take place. So we're starting in verse 12, First uh, Corinthians 15. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. God, as we look at the resurrection this morning, and we, we have the testimony of your word, but we have other things as well, That because all of creation and all of history and all of the purpose of man, you are sovereign over, and you coordinate all of that so that it points to your truth. And so, reassure us today that the resurrection really did happen, and that we can be confident in that, because if if it didn't happen, Paul says, we are to be most pitied, but we want to know and walk out of here with confidence, more confidence than when we came in, that we are trusting in Christ's resurrection. A true event that took place that really does um, really does, encompass all of history and creation. And it is the central focus of all of those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, that's a pretty grim picture that Paul paints here. Unless we can know with confidence that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. So we're going to look at some evidence that proves beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus really did die, and he really did come back to life. Um, so, we're gonna, we have two points that we're going to be looking at, and the first one in your notes, and let me just say before we get started, um, I'm going to move quickly, and I'm going to cover a lot of material today. So, the notes are designed just so that you can kind of follow along, but I'm not expecting you to be able to take every note down that you might want to write. So, after the service, if you want, I will give you a copy of my sermon notes that have all of the other details in it. So don't feel like you have to write it all down if you'd rather listen, and then you can pick that up afterward. All right, so our first point is evidence for an empty tomb, because if there's a resurrection, there has to be an empty tomb, right? And so we're going to look at six things, and these are n- this is not an exhaustive list of things that we could have talked about, but these are the things that I think were more... Uh, pertinent for today. Um, so the first one is, first piece of evidence for the empty tomb is that the resurrection was proclaimed in Jerusalem. That's the very place where Jesus was buried, and the reason why that is something that gives evidence to an empty tomb is because if Jesus was still dead, if he did not rise from the dead, then anyone being in the very city where he was buried, anyone could have just gone to the tomb and pushed the stone to the side and said, there you go, there's his dead body for all of the public to see. That would have discredited any claim of the resurrection that the disciples would have been proclaiming. But because nobody did that, that would have been a really easy thing to do, but because nobody did that, it's, a re- it's reasonable to conclude that the tomb was actually empty. The second piece of evidence that we had an empty tomb was that the earliest Jewish arguments against Christianity even admitted that the tomb was empty. The earliest arguments against Christianity did not deny it. Now, we know from Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15, that's where the guards who were guarding the tomb had gone back to the the chief priests and said, the body's gone, the tomb is empty, and the chief priests and the elders told them that They were supposed to tell the people that Jesus' disciples came in the night and stole his body, and that's why his body is gone. So we know that that started in, that started Easter, the very first Easter, the day of resurrection, that rumor began. But if you look at that, again, they could have gone to the tomb and said, here's his body, but they didn't. Instead, they came up with some story that covers it up. So they did not deny an empty tomb. And so in their, it, in their attempt to cover it up, they actually ended up admitting that there was an empty tomb. But we have extra biblical sources as well that talk about this. Uh, the Death Yesu is a compilation of early Jewish writings. And it acknowledges two things. It acknowledges, one, that the tomb was empty... And it also acknowledges that there were attempts by the Jews to explain it away. So the, these are early Jewish writings that talk about it. And we also know of a debate that took place in the 2nd century. So this is some time removed. In the 2nd century, a debate between a Jew and a Christian that discussed the Jews' claim that, the, that Jesus' body had been stolen. And so even, even into the 2nd century, there was still this rumor that the that the chief priests and the elders began and told the soldiers to spread, that Jesus' disciples had come and stolen his body. Both of those things admit, those records, those historical records, admit that the Jews knew and they acknowledged that the tomb was empty. Number three, the gospel accounts are early sources that were recorded within 40 years of the crucifixion and the resurrection. They were early sources recorded within 40 years of the crucifixion and the resurrection, which makes those accounts too early to become legendary. It's not, you know, over time, things bec- things morph, they evolve into something different than what they were initially, and so over time, legends begin and sometimes the legend that we learn growing up as children is not the same as what really took place. But that takes time. And in, in studying historic documents and studying things that might get shed some light on historic documents, what we, f- what we find is that the closer to the event that something was recorded, the more likely it is to be accurate. And 40 years is a very, very short time when you, when you consider historical documents that have been recorded many times hundreds of years later for the first time. 40 years is a very short window. However, there's more that, that draws us closer to the actual event than 40 years. So let me walk you through a little bit of information that'll kind of draw out a timeline for you. We know that Paul was martyred under Emperor Emperor Nero in Rome in 64 AD. We've been studying Acts, right? We haven't gotten to the end. We will this month. The end of Acts ends with Paul still alive, which means that that Luke wrote Acts prior to Paul's death. So Acts was written prior to 64 AD. Luke begins his account in Acts with this. This is the very first verse of Acts. In my former book, he's writing to a a guy named Theophilus, and he's writing about, he's getting ready to write about the events of the church after Jesus ascended to heaven. But he references his former book that he also wrote to Theophilus, which is the Gospel of Luke. So Acts was written before 64 AD. The Gospel of Luke was written even earlier than that. And the Gospel of Luke begins by, by stating to Theophilus that there have been many people who have, ta- have undertaken the task of, of an account of Jesus' life and writing out an account of Jesus' life. So Acts was prior to 64 AD. Luke, the Gospel of Luke was prior to that. And when he wrote Luke, the Gospel, he says, there have already been people who have been recording this. And so I've decided to do an investigation and record it also. One of those accounts that we know was earlier than the Gospel of Luke was Mark's Gospel. And so we know that Mark's Gospel was even earlier than Luke's. We also know, and I don't have time to explain it all here, but we also have good proof that Mark used a source as he was referencing things to to record, and he used a source that was earlier even still, and that source, we have good reason to believe, could have been within the first seven years after the death and resurrection. In terms of historical documents and accuracy, that is, like, that's unheard of. You don't, you have that today because people record things today, but back then people didn't record them as the event was unfolding. They didn't have, they didn't have international news that they could watch as it was unfolding and record events and have video to go back to and those things. So seven years is, is incredible to be able to say this witness that recorded this was within seven years of the death and resurrection. So all four Gospels were written by eyewitnesses or by those who interviewed eyewitnesses. And at least three of those four Gospels were written very early on after the events of Jesus' life and therefore are very reliable sources for accuracy. Now, because these early sources supported by eyewitness testimony can be reliable and they all speak of the empty tomb, we can conclude that the tomb was empty. Number four, the burial account indicates that the tomb was empty. Joseph of Arimathea is the is the member of the, the he was a Pharisee he was a member of the Sanhedrin who buried Jesus in his own tomb. Joseph had a tomb. He buried Jesus in his own tomb. He was a very prominent member of the Jewish Sanhedrin and well known in Jewish society, well known in Jerusalem. So it would have been impossible to make up a story about him burying Jesus, because if it was false he was too well known to be able to to come up with something that was untrue now again like like point number 1 if jesus had if jesus was buried and we know he was and if he was still dead anyone could have gone to the tomb to find his body there if he was still dead and in the tomb this would have been the easiest and most rapidly solved cases in history. But because no one did this, it's reasonable to conclude that the tomb was empty. Number five, Jesus' tomb was never turned into a shrine. There was a custom in the first century when a holy man died, people, especially his followers, but they would set up a shrine near the holy man's bones. Um, in fact, you can go to Jerusalem today, and there's a burial complex in Jerusalem. It used to be open to the public, and you could just go in and see it. Now they gar- they they are careful about who they let in because it's been vandalized and stuff. But but there is you could go today. And there's a complex of um, you go in this you go into this complex, and there are tombs all over the place and I don't know how many there are but we do know that those tombs contain the bones of many of the first century pharisee or first century sanhedrin members they were they were honored they were revered they were looked at as being the spiritual elite um so they have set up this thing this complex so that they can be honored for the rest of time some of those people, some of those bones in those tombs are probably people who condemned Jesus to death. So there is this custom that they did at the time where they would, turn, they would turn tombs or places where someone was buried into a shrine. But that wasn't ever done for Jesus. So we, I think, logically can conclude it wasn't done because his bones weren't there which means there's an empty tomb. One more thing to show evidence of an empty tomb. Women were the first to find the tomb was empty. In first century Jewish culture, the testimony of a woman just, this isn't fair, but it wasn't considered to be credible. So if the disciples were going to steal the body of Jesus, make up some fabrication about how he came back to life, if they're making up the story and lying about it, in order to sell that as a credible story to the Jews in Jerusalem, they would have needed to establish that men were the first witnesses of the resurrection or of the empty tomb. But all four gospel accounts list women, as the first ones to learn that the tomb was empty. Because the gospel accounts record women being the first to find the tomb, we can conclude that there was no attempt on the disciples' part to polish the story, to, to take this false thing that wasn't true and make it look as much like a true story as they can. And we can conclude that since they didn't do that, that there really was an empty tomb. All right. So that's evidence for an empty tomb, but we need to look at evidence for resurrection because so far all we've proven is that Jesus wasn't there, his body wasn't there. We haven't proven that he came back to life. We've just looked at logical evidence that says he wasn't there, evidence and a fact that has been understood by the Jewish people for centuries. So let's look at some evidence for the resurrection. And here's, here's the stuff that we really want to dig into today because, like Paul said in our text, if there is no resurrection and if, there, it, it, if it is only for this current life on this earth that we have hope in Jesus and we don't have hope that he came back to life and we don't have hope that there's a resurrection for us, we don't have hope that our sin debt has been canceled because of his death and death has been... Um, conquered because of his resurrection, then we, we are to be pitied and our faith is useless and there's really no point in what we do, which is why we need to have confidence in this. So let's look at some evidence for the resurrection. There are three theories that have kind of been, th- three main theories, there are others out there, but three main theories that have kind of been thrown out there that I'm going to address today. And so I'm going to list them and then I will go through them and talk about why they don't hold up. The first one is that Jesus was not actually dead. That when they put him in the tomb, he wasn't fully dead. And so he ended up coming to and made his way out of the tomb. The second one is that the apostles were lying. And that's the stolen body theory. So maybe he wasn't really dead or maybe the apostles stole his body maybe, and they were lying and making, it, making up a story and another one is that the apostles were perhaps hallucinating. Maybe they wanted Jesus t- to come back to life or they were so distraught because he was gone that, and they wanted it so badly that their mind began to play tricks on them and they began to see what they thought was really Jesus, but, but it wasn't Jesus, it was just a hallucination. All right, now all three of these things... Um, all three of them are things that are complicated because we have eyewitness testimony. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 again, and this is before our text, taught from three, from verses three to eight tells us that there were more than 500 eyewitnesses to the account, to the, to the resurrection. Um. Paul runs a list, Runs through a list of the people that Jesus appeared to and at one point he appeared to 500 people all at once. So he appeared to his disciples and he appeared to them more than once and he appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus and he appeared to the 500 all at one time and he appeared to Paul. So there were over 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So that kind of complicates these things. But let's look at let's look at these theories. The first one is that Jesus was not actually dead. Um, I think you can advance to the next. One more. Okay. The first one is that Jesus was not actually dead. All right. John 19, 33 and 34 is the account John's account of the cross. And so... If, if the theory is that he was not actually dead, that means he, he didn't fully die. Maybe he was knocked out unconscious or something because of the the suffering he, he went through on the cross. But he wasn't fully dead. They laid him in the tomb, and then he all of a sudden came to. But John's account tells us that the soldier, when they broke the two legs of the other people, or the other um, people that were crucified on his sides because they weren't dead yet. So he broke they broke their legs so that they would collapse and it would cause suffocation because of the weight on their lungs. But they got to Jesus and Jesus was already dead. And so it doesn't tell us why the soldier did it. My guess is in order to make sure that he really was dead, he shoved his spear through his side. He would have been, he would have been, doing it up at an angle, so he shoved his spear into his side and up into his chest cavity. When he pulled the spear out, John tells us, there was a flow of blood and water. So, there are a couple of different things that could have taken place here. I've read things that um, cardiothoracic surgeons have written about, the heart and the lungs and the chest cavity, that probably were happening, and there were a couple of different things. One is that uh, perhaps the spear pierced the pericardium, which is that fluid-filled sac that goes around your heart. And that fluid that's filled in that sac is a clear fluid called pericardial fluid. And so the spear would have perhaps punctured that and punctured the heart so that when he withdrew the spear there would have been that clear fluid, the pericardial fluid, or, and blood coming out from puncturing the heart. Um, another potential thing that I've read is that he could have had what's called a hemothorax. Um, a cardiothoracic surgeon that um, studied this said that the condition, the, the, the stiffness and the stillness of his body, the stillness of his dead body would have perhaps allowed this to take a, take place. There's a this uh, hemothorax is something where you suffer severe blows or beating, like the flogging that he went through. And what takes place then is um, th- with your lung, you've got um, this bleeding and stuff that takes place, and then the red blood cells and the plasma separate when, when your body then dies and becomes still. There's a separation between the blood, red blood cells and the plasma, and the red blood cells are heavier, they settle to the bottom, and the plasma is lighter, it, it's on top, and so if he had pierced his lung with the spear, and he had had a hemothorax, then when he pulled it out, there would have been a flow of blood followed by a flow of water, uh, what looked like water. It's, the plasma was clear. So we're not sure exactly what happened because they didn't have autopsies at the time, but we have a good understanding of how the human body works from those who study that. And in essence, what we're talking about here is the spirit either pierced his lungs or pierced his heart and caused this flow of blood and water, which was an indication that there was already... There was already death that had taken over in Jesus' earthly body. And even if someone wants to say, okay, but maybe he wasn't quite dead yet, if your heart is pierced or if your lung is full of fluid and and also pierced, then your body is not going to just recover from that. Um, And so there are too many pieces of evidence that point to the fact that Jesus was fully dead. So I don't know that him not being f- actually dead is a theory that anybody seriously can consider with the evidence. Another theory is that the apostles were lying that they stole the body and that they were lying. And the problem with this is that there's no motivation for this on anybody's part. The Jews wanted to suppress Christianity. So they wouldn't have they wouldn't have stolen the body to Do something Because if they'd stolen the body and removed it, that would have just encouraged this belief that he was going to come back to life. So the Jews had no motivation to do it. The Romans had no motivation to do it because they wanted to put a stop to the disruption of peace in Jerusalem that had been brought about by this man, Jesus. And so neither one of those groups would have removed the body because if they did, it would have encouraged people to believe it. But the story is that the, the, the disciples, Jesus' disciples stole the body, but they actually had no motivation to steal it either because if they were to steal his body and, and try to cover it up and then start proclaiming that he had ro- risen from the dead. Here's the problem. They were beaten and they were persecuted and they were even put to death for preaching that. So why would somebody be willing to suffer and die for something that they fully knew was an absolute lie? Now, I know that people sometimes believe something happened, and, it's, and it didn't happen, and, but they believe it, and so they're willing to lay down their life. They're willing to take up the cause and fight and maybe even die for the cause. But that's not the case with the disciples. If they stole the body, they would have known it wasn't true. So nobody, nobody is willing to die for something that they know is false. False. So there was no motivation for anyone to steal the body. The apostles had no motivation for lying because they didn't gain anything from it. Um, there are, there are a, f- a few different motivations why somebody might lie about something. Um, you know, power is something, if they can gain power or or wealth or you know there are a few things that might motivate somebody to lie about something but the apostles they did not get any of those things they didn't gain wealth they didn't gain power they didn't gain popularity they got beaten and persecuted and put to death i believe 10 of them willingly history tells us 10 of them willingly laid down their life and was and were martyred for claiming the resurrection so the apostles lying in the stolen body theory doesn't hold up either. The third one was that the apostles were perhaps hallucinating. Maybe they just wanted it so badly that their brains tricked them. Now that has been suggested that their brain might conjure up some kind of false image, but that he didn't really come back to life. But there's a few things I want to mention about this one. Last Easter... Um, I went back to see what I t- what I talked about last Easter and not expecting any of you to remember this but last Easter I talked about biblical evidence that I don't know that the apostles I don't think the apostles actually expected Jesus to physically rise from the dead. There's enough evidence in scripture that I don't think that they that that was on their mind. I think his resurrection they looked forward to what they understood to be the the resurrection at the end of time, in the the end. I don't think they believed that his physical body was going to rise. And so, first of all, I don't know that that would have been something their brains would have been conjuring up because they weren't expecting it. Another thing that's a problem with this is that hallucinations don't work like that. They don't transfer from one person to another. I can't like I can't, like, hallucinate about something and then, like, put that into somebody else's mind. And hallucinations don't work where a group of 500 people would all have the same hallucination. They wouldn't have the same thing that they're looking at. Their brains would work differently. So that's not how hallucinations work, which I think discredits this as well. But let's just, for the sake of argument, say that maybe they did. Maybe all 500 of them, that when they when they saw him, they were all having the exact same hallucination. That still leaves us with a problem because a, a hallucination does not explain why the tomb was empty. So if they were just hallucinating, then why is there no body in the tomb? Which leaves us with the only logical, reasonable Conclusion, and that is that the apostles really did see the resurrected Christ. That Christ really did fully die a complete and full earthly death. That no one stole his body from the tomb because we've shown that there's no good explanation that his body would be gone that it wasn't a hallucination and that Jesus actually did rise from the dead and more than 500 people saw it with their own eyes. And many of those people went on to write accounts of it, to proclaim it in the most dangerous of places to proclaim it and were willing to suffer and die because they knew it was true. All right, so there's more that we could talk about around this. There's certainly people have for centuries been debating this. So there's more that we could talk about, but I wanted to make sure that we covered these things. I think it's important to know that our faith in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is not wishful thinking. It's not blind faith. It's not a willful ignoring of the evidence. In fact, the more you dig into the evidence, the more the evidence points to it which is why people who have come out of atheism and become believers say that to, to remain in a, in a life of uh, in the belief of atheism actually takes, it requires more faith, more trust in something you can't prove than to follow Christ. When put to the test by scholars and theologians through the ages, When put to the test by atheistic skeptics, people like Lee Strobel, who was an atheist, who was an investigative journalist with the Chicago Tribune, who investigated it and came to the conclusion it was real and true, when put to the test by crime scene investigators like J. Warner Wallace, if you know who that is. He's a cold case homicide detective who started investigating the death of the death and the resurrection of Jesus the way you would investigate a cold case that you ought to find evidence to prove one way or the other. When it's put to the test by people who are skilled in those areas, the evidence always points to an actual resurrection that can be proven beyond any reasonable doubt. So Jesus really is risen, and if he really did rise from the dead, then he really is God's chosen servant to offer forgiveness for our sins and our justification before God's judgment seat. So we're not to be pitied more than all men, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, but rather we're messengers of hope for the whole world. I can say with confidence he is risen, and you can reply with confidence. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your coordination of all the deeds of history and of your your creation and your coordination of people and how all of those things all of those things point and give evidence to a resurrection of Jesus. let us walk out of here God having more a deeper and more um, convicting confidence in the fact that the resurrection took place, and let us be perhaps more w- equipped to engage in discussion with people who can't possibly see how believing that someone came back to life after he was put to death could could have happened. The world looks at that and calls it foolish but we know it's true, and so may we be messengers of hope, not people who are pitied, but people who have the only message that can bring hope for those who are still living a life separated from you. In Jesus' name, amen.